You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou Well, as our gospel reading ends today, we have this enigmatic line from Jesus. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. If you grew up in the church, depending on the translation of the Bible your church used, you might have heard this passage rendered in a slightly different way. The kingdom of God is inside of you. Both are completely accurate translations of the Greek, and you can only tell from context which is meant. The context here is very short. This little excerpt we had from the Gospel is preceded by things that largely don't relate to it and followed by things that don't largely relate to it. So this is a very short little story about Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. Now the translation that the Kingdom of God is inside of you has caused caused some uh, strangeness in the life of the church. It's caused some eccentricities to, to arise at times. In the Middle Ages, monks decided what that meant was is that they needed to turn their eyes, the eyes of their souls inward and seek around in their heart looking for the kingdom of God. When a Protestant Reformation came along, beginning with the Zwickau prophets, which is right at the time of Luther, People began looking around in there, there and they were searching for some sort of internal experience to validate what they already had from the Word of God. Some Protestants even went so far as to make having this kind of internal experience of regeneration, this feeling, be the condition of salvation. In other words, if you hadn't had a moment like that, you weren't saved yet. And of course, New Agers love this passage because with it they try to turn Jesus into some New Age guru instead of leaving him a first century Jew. So it's caused a little bit of chaos. So one thing that we, we, I think, need to learn to do when we read the scriptures is not leap over the words too quickly. The actual words are important. And I think it's because of the chaos that it's caused throughout church history that maybe these translators, actually from Wheaton, your, your school of origin, um, this, these translators chose the translation, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Because what you need to do is picture the scene in your mind. Now, in our world, teachers stand at the front of the classroom and they teach. And all the students sit in rows and they look forward much the same way you're looking at me right now. But in the peripatetic schools of the Roman Empire, peripateo being the Greek word for walking around, the teacher got to sit and the students walked around the teacher. So as Jesus is teaching, and he's talking with the Pharisees and they're asking for signs about the kingdom of God, they're, they're looking to the heavens and saying, what will we see? When will the time come? What will the signs be? And Jesus says, you won't find it that way. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
meaning himself. He's sitting right in the middle of them. He's the king. Wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. And that's why I love Dallas Willard's definition of the kingdom of God as the functional reach of God's will. Wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom. This thing's rustling again. Excuse me for a minute. We're going to get this fixed. (laughs) So, wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom. Now, what about that other translation, though? Which has been around for a very long time, obviously. That the kingdom of God is inside of you. Well, it's not untrue, but it needs to be set along other passages of Scripture for us to understand that the truth of it. Now, rather than seeking internal experiences or evidences of God, which in the early church they were highly suspicious of. In fact, they they were told people, if you have an extraordinary spiritual experience, test it. Quit carefully. You can look at the way Jude deals with this, even the way other passages in 2 Corinthians deal with this this issue. Because even Satan can appear as an angel of light. Rather than seeking extraordinary experiences within us to validate the Word of God, we are taught, and we're, they taught in the early church, to look to the Word of God to teach you what's going on in your life. So whether you have that experience or not, something's going on with God. Now what would that be? When we line up other passages of Scripture, the first thing we have to know is who is Christ? Well, when Paul is interacting with the Athenians on Mars Hill... He quotes one of their own poets to them and says, well, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. But then when you get to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, we see Jesus described the same way. He is the one who created all things. He is the one for whom all things exist. He is the one to whom all things are returning. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And we know that if someone has received Christ, they have received the Holy Spirit with or without accompanying fireworks because that is the promise of God. If you can call God Father, we're told in Galatians, then you have the spirit of adoption. The spirit has come upon you and dwells within you. Now, sometimes God gives us extraordinary spiritual experiences and when we have them, they're wonderful. But they are not what make our faith. God gives them or withholds them for His own good purposes and out of His love for us. But we are to learn to trust the Word of God and walk according to it. And God's Word tells us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is within us. And wherever the King is, there is the Kingdom. So the Kingdom of God is inside of you. But if that's true, if that's true, if we are, as St. Paul says in our passage from the New Testament today, in Christ, why is it that so many professing Christians behave so badly? Why can we look through history and see atrocities committed by people who called Jesus Lord? Why can people who are earnestly trying to follow God 
experience times of where God feels distant and sometimes even absent. Well, I wish there was an easy answer to that question. I wish I could just give you a quick one-word answer and you could trot off and apply that, but like all human realities, well, it's complex. There's multiple things that contribute to that. We'll talk about some of them later in the sermon series, but today we're going to focus in on one particular one. As a result of the fall, our tendency is to swerve away from God. It is by God's grace, God's unmerited favor, that we are united with Jesus Christ. And so can experience this ongoing communion with Him, this life in Christ that St. Paul is talking about. In fact, if you turn to your New Testament passage, you will see there, and again, I want to encourage you to attend to the words, these famous words from St. Paul, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, that is, anyone who has received Christ in faith... If anyone is in Christ, not he will be a new creation, not he's becoming a new creation, but he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's all past tense. It's accomplished. But what happens when we go seeking our experiences rather than trusting the Word of God is this. We go seeking for what we imagine a spiritual experience will look like. And we like our spiritual experiences the way we like our meals when we go out to order dinner. We go out to dinner, we like our meals to come to the table hot. We like them well spiced. We like them very tasty. And we like them easily digestible. But when the Bible talks about the spiritual life, it uses language about growth or growing. Not something just given to us, although it begins with it being given to us, but something into which we grow, what theologians call sanctification. We need to change our mental picture of what a spiritual experience would look like. Instead of it looking like fireworks, we need to look at it the way the Bible describes it, as being born again, like a child, beautiful and fully formed, but not yet fully realized. Not all of its potential realized yet. I had a chance to reflect on this this week. I tortured poor Bethany. I made her hang out after rehearsal on Thursday and listen to one of my favorite classical pieces. Um, it was a piece that 25 years ago I could play because that was my senior recital. Actually, March of 2000, uh, 1994 was my senior recital. And I could play that piece at this time. And play a little excerpt for you here. See, I'm going to torture you too. You push that down arrow for me, eh, Freddie?
beautiful piece. Um, what was more impressive than I could play that piece was I could play this one. Hit that arrow one more time. those of you who are musicians, that's in six sharps, and it goes on for another four minutes. Now, when I was born on October 3rd, 1969, in Helene Fold Hospital in Trenton, New Jersey, the ability to do that was already within me. I was born completely possessed of that, but that potential was not yet fully realized. When we are born again in Christ, all that we are, all that we need for the living of this kingdom life is given to us as a gift. But we have to grow into it. 25 years ago, I could play that. Today, I'm pretty sure I couldn't even make a sound like that on the saxophone, let alone play those pieces. And why? Because I'm out of... I'm out of practice. One of the reasons why we don't have the experience of what is true. It is true that we are in Christ all the time. But what is true is not always apparent to us because we are out of practice. When I think of the ratio of time I spend in prayer to time I spend doing things like paying my bills, time I spend doing YouTube or whatever... I'm going to be more practiced at the things I spend more time with. But part of our journey as Christians is to learn to practice. Practice with the gift we've already been given in toto by God's unmerited favor for us. In the Bible, the relationship that is most commonly compared to God's relationship with His people is that of marriage. Now, whether you're married or not, Um, you can see marriages and see how they function. Now, I'm a pastor who loves a wedding day. But I like even better an anniversary. Because, you know, when you come to the altar, there's nobody who's not young and foolish. Or young at heart and foolish. Okay? You can't possibly know everything about the person you are committing to spend the rest of your life with and live with and be yoked with. And the hope is that as years go on, the communion you will experience with them, and the word communion just means union with, will grow over time. But it doesn't grow by big explosions and fireworks. I mean, hopefully a marriage has a few of those too. (laughs) But the average day-to-day experience of a marriage is just putting one foot in front of the other. It's being disciplined about the stuff of ordinary life. It's growing to love the other person as you come to know the other person better because you're doing things faithfully with the other person and they're doing things faithfully with you. That's the ideal of what a marriage should be and it's what our relationship with God is like. There are days in a marriage that are difficult. There are days when... You go to bed and it's, I love you, I love you too. (laughs) There's days 
when it's just tedious, because it's the same thing you did the day before that, and the day before that, and the day before that. But in that process, your union with the other person grows. And it's the same way in our spiritual life. The most reprinted book in Christian history on prayer is a book called Practicing the Presence of God. Practicing the Presence of God. And it was written by a cook. He wanted to be a monk, but they would never let him in. He spent his whole time cooking for the other monks. But in the course of that cooking and daily faithfulness, he learned to walk with God. And his spiritual director encouraged him to write down his experiences. It's been in print for like 10 centuries. You can get it for free on the internet. (laughs) To practice what we've been given as a gift until it starts to realize itself in our lives. That is what the commitment of Lent is. To remind ourselves to once again practice the presence of God. So our awareness of God's presence can grow. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the gifts you give us. First and foremost, the unmerited gift of your favor in Jesus Christ and calling us to faith, granting us the gift of the Holy Spirit to receive that that enormous, enormous gift of eternal life. And Lord, we would ask that you would grant us the diligence to start practicing your presence. Help us, Lord, as we began last week to set aside time, help us in that time to begin seeking your face and not only your hands. A relationship with you and not merely the things you can give us. Help us, O Lord, to be filled with your Spirit and to learn to see your purposes at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us and to align ourselves with those things that we may more closely walk with you and enjoy the richness of the inheritance you've given us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. My vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life.